This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome, friend, to our weekly garden party. We hope you brought along your questions because it's time to dish the dirt. On The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, good morning. I'm Frank Crocker, the sous chef of the garden. And uh, in the interest of transparency and possibly new listeners who might be hearing the show for the first time, welcome to Saturday, August 15th. But in reality, we're recording this show last Monday. And we're forced to do that because, of course, of the pandemic. So we can't accept any live phone calls, just emails. So here's how it happens. Joel, our producer at his home in Toronto, has just called me to make sure I'm by my computer ready to record my half of the conversation on my Acer machine. And it's just said, okay, Frank, I'll connect you with Charlie in Prince Edward County now. So all things being equal, Charlie Dobbin, your affable host, should be on her phone right now. Hey, Charlie, can you hear me now? Absolutely, Frankie. Can you hear me? <laughs> You're coming in loud and clear, <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> Good heavens. That was one long-winded intro to the show. Well, you're right, but I, I did want to explain why we can't talk to our listeners as we used to. I miss that, you know. I, I miss not seeing your face and not, you know, being able to kind of work off each other's body language, et cetera, et cetera. Do you, have you heard anything about um, what when the studios might open up for us again? Well, not specifically, but I do know they're being very cautious and will only open up the Zoomerplex when things are absolutely safe. Uh, by the way, one of our listeners, Carla, wrote me this interesting little observation. She said, going back to the studio would be great. Similar sensation as reading a book or a newspaper in your hands, other than an e-book or the world news on your tablet, and ending up eventually with severe neck or spine problems, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well said, Carla. So, Mr. Proctor, did you give some thought to what we might chat about in this opening segment? Well, uh, I called you yesterday and said, hey, any ideas what we may touch on? You said, yeah, monarch butterflies. You know, the monarch butterfly is one of the most recognizable and well-studied butterflies on the planet. And I know you're fascinated by them, too. Of course I am. They're famous for their seasonal migration. Did you know that millions of monarchs migrate from the United States and Canada south to California and Mexico just for the winter? So in our neck of the woods, sort of the eastern side of the the um, North America, only monarchs that emerge in late summer or early fall make the annual migration south for the winter. As the days get shorter and the weather cooler, they know it's time to abandon their breeding grounds in the northern U.S. and Canada, and they head south to the mountains of central Mexico where it's much warmer. Some migrate up to 3,000 miles. And then once they're there, they huddle together on oyamel fir trees to wait out the winter. 
And once the days start growing longer again, they begin to move back north, stopping somewhere along the route to lay eggs. Then the new generation continues further north and stops to lay eggs. The whole process may repeat over four or five generations before the monarchs have reached Canada again. Wow. Now, how, how the devil do they do to make such a long journey? How do they do that? <sighs> uh, I have no idea how they figured this out, but scientists say that monarchs use the sun to stay on course, but they also have a magnetic compass that they carry in their back pocket to help them navigate on cloudy days. I'm joking. They actually have a magnetic compass inside their heads. Uh, And they also have a special gene for highly efficient muscles, which gives them an advantage for long distance flights. Wow. Incredible. Maybe through the show again. I'll drop a few more interesting facts there. There's some fascinating stuff on monarch butterflies that maybe we can touch upon. But, Professor, we could go on at great lengths here about those fascinating insects. <laughs> but there are listeners out there who are dying to hear your answer to their emailed questions. And, Frank, we do need more emails for next week's show. My cupboard is practically bare. Well, all <laughs> right, let's get that fixed up. Excellent point, Countess of the County. Yes, please send your questions to Charlie Dobbin. At this address, C. Dobbin, that's D O B B I N, at mzmedia.com. And Charlie and I will return very shortly here on The Garden Show on Zuma Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zuma Radio. Well, all right, Charlie, let's uh, get to our emails. Now, uh, you might remember last week, just before we closed the show, that I said, hey, we haven't got time to read Dolores Rodnick's uh, little note here, but uh, you'll you'll enjoy it when next week uh, I do read it. I found it just a wonderful, delightfully written, self-deprecating little note. So here, let me let me give it to you. She, uh, Doris, uh, Dolores, rather, is from the city of Kawartha Lakes, okay? Says, good morning. I'm a frequent listener to your show, and I really enjoy it, especially since I have no idea what I'm doing. Anyway, I have a problem with the propagation of this plant. I live in the country, and there's a creek behind my property. So far, I've been able to get rid of all the goldenrod, as I'm allergic to it, and I planted a row of nine hydrangeas. Next to my lot was a singular small sumac encroaching on my hydrangeas, so I cut it down and put weed spray on it. Needless to say, it didn't work, as there appears to be many more of the little darlings wanting to see the light of day. I'm not in a position to have them dug out, as I am known as now elderly, and I want you to know, I want to know if you have a solution. Someone told me that I should use calcium, but before I do this, I want your opinion. I don't really want to disturb the natural foliage of the riverbank, so I'd appreciate your help. Send the photo along. One photo shows the garden cloth that I have installed after weed spraying in the hope of the weeds underneath that will die and the other in the area where we have cleared the sumacs. They are non-poisonous ones. And she says, keep your knees dirty. That from Dolores. <laughs> Who are the lakes? I know. It's cute. Well, thank you for the photos because that certainly helps uh, with some understanding. Um yeah, so it's like a big tarp. It looks more like a tarp that's uh, been put over top of the ground uh, rather than weed cloth. Well, if it is weed cloth, that will not kill anything, right? You understand that weed cloth allows moisture through, it allows sunlight through, um, 
And because the idea is that you put it around your chosen plants, but you want those plants to live. So uh, rain has to penetrate through, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it is supposed to keep things growing from underneath. However, sumacs are pretty tough plants. As you point out, they want to see the light of day. So they're going to be a tough ones to control. Um, my impulse at, at this point is once the, the flowers are pretty much finished, so by the end of August, I'd go down and cut all of them down to ground level so that you've got nothing showing above ground. And then next spring, when the new growth starts, because they're going to be little green sprouts that are going to start to grow up from ground level, they're going to be very fresh and young in the spring, you're going to be poised and ready to go with some horticultural vinegar, which is a stronger concentration of vinegar than what we use when we are putting vinegar on our french fries. And you're going to use that to spray on the green leaves as they emerge in the spring. And you're going to stay on top of that. You're going to do that every day, if necessary. Um, and they will turn yellow and eventually it will die back at the root but it's going to take some time there's going to be multi sprays required in order to just keep killing off the green foliage and ultimately that will starve the root and the plants that the roots will will shrivel up and die from lack of energy because they have no leaves uh, to support them and um it'll be a, it's it's the best way to do it really uh, other than digging and like you said it's digging is not really an option so um that's what i would do and good luck and do you too keep your knees dirty <laughs> yeah thank you dolores that was very nice a little note okay uh from mary ferris she says uh, i put last halloween's pumpkin in the back garden now i have a big orange pumpkin growing on my front lawn just turned orange this week what should i do with it to keep it from rotting is it it is still attached to the plant or will it not survive until October? Should I just compost it? Thank you, Mary Ferris. <laughs> okay, so Mary, what I would do is I'd keep it. Um, now, the fact that it's growing in the lawn can be a challenge because I've had that happen too where you get this idea to grow pumpkins and then before you know it, you've got a vine 20 feet long growing in places that aren't always appropriate. It does become challenging to mow the lawn when you've got a, a pumpkin vine growing right through it. But I would, I'd keep it. Um, you're going to have to obviously harvest it before there's any kind of frost. So you want to use it for Halloween and likely we won't have frost before, but we might. If we do have a frost before Halloween, then you're going to have to uh, sever it from the plant and put it uh, somewhere just under cover. Like don't obviously bring it in the house or anything, but just somewhere where frost won't get on the actual pumpkin um if you can k take it up off the ground like the growers the, the the people that grow the giant pumpkins and they they do such fancy crazy things to to grow the biggest you know biggest fattest pumpkins um they will always grow them off the ground so they will grow them actually on a on a pallet so that they can ultimately move them uh once it's time to to do the harvesting in your case uh, you don't need a pallet but it'd be nice to get something underneath something that will allow a bit of air circulation uh, it could be, um, you know, even even some card. Well, cardboard isn't the best because it could get soggy. But the idea is you want that that pumpkin not sitting on anything wet. Sometimes people will just use like straw or something like that. Um, it, you know, your lawn, if it's a good, fairly thick lawn, might even be good enough as it is. But bottom line is, yeah, I mean, don't don't. I mean, you will compost it eventually, but try and see if you can keep it going to Halloween because it's always so fun to grow your own, right? Exactly. Okay. Uh Note from Anne Ottaway, really short question here, says, Hi, Charlie. I have an echinacea growing up through 
one of my hostas. I'd like to separate them. Now, would you suggest doing that this fall or in the spring? Thank you. So, Anne, you can do either. It's up to you. If you're going to do your separating and, you know, transplanting in the fall, you, the way to do it, of course, is you cut down the foliage of both the hosta and, and the echinacea. Then you're going to carefully dig out the separate plants and then you're going to, you know, move and, and put them back in the ground wherever you want them so that they've got enough space to be happy and healthy. If you wait till the spring, then of course, you don't have to cut down any foliage because the foliage isn't there. You're just going to watch for new growth. Hostas are very obvious in the spring when they're coming up. The little noses start poking through the surface of the soil. And, and your echinacea is also going to be fairly obvious. And it's at, in the spring when you can start to see that starting to happen. And, of course, the ground is thawed by this time. Again, with your nice sharp shovel, you go in there digging carefully, separating out the separate plants, and then transplanting into better location. Uh, you know, obviously take advantage this opportunity, amend your soil, get some good quality organic matter in there, whether it's composted manure or homemade compost. Either way, this is a great opportunity. Like I say, amend the soil with some good quality organic material and both the echinacea and the hosta will be super happy for that. Excellent. Okay. Thank you. Um, coming up close to our next break here, but indeed time enough for me to remind you that really, we really seriously do need more emails sent to Charlie Dobbin with your questions. Questions, okay, and here's the address one more time: c. Dobbin, d o b b i n at mzmedia.com. We'd appreciate that very much. Meantime, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Give Charlie a break and rest up for the next batch of questions coming by here on the Garden Show on Zuma Radio. Daffodils and daisies, bluebells and begonias, forsythia and foxgloves, marigolds, magnolia, lavender and lupins, dahlias, delphiniums, stalks, fox, hollyhocks, tulips and sweet williams. You've picked the right place for everything floral. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Frank Proctor, along with Charlie Dobbin, of course, here on The Garden Show. And uh, to our next question, this from Connie and Bob uh, Tavoynen up there in Keswick. Say, so, uh, good day. Uh, this year we noticed that the outer leaves on the tree have sprouts growing out of them, as shown in the attached picture. We do not know what type of tree this is. Is this growth normal? Mm. Hmm. So did you look at the picture, Frank? Yeah, I did. I, it wasn't very clear to me, I must admit. So it look, it, the, the leaves of, I think it's a linden tree, the leaves have pimples all over them. Ah. Like little, little protrusions um, sticking up on the surface, the top surface of the leaves. So these are what we call galls, G-A-L-L-S, galls. Never serious, um, obviously odd looking. So cosmetically, uh, aesthetically not quite good looking. Like I said, it looks like a severe case of acne on the foliage of the tree, but not to worry about it. What happens is there's an insect or a mite that's on the leaves and the leaf responds by growing around the insect or or the mite. So that's where these galls come from. So you've got lots of insects, you've got lots of little pimples all over the place. Um, the, it, it's funny too, because the galls can be all different colors. They can turn red, they can turn yellow. Sometimes they're just green and they blend in on the foliage and sometimes they're even black. So, uh, yeah, odd looking, but not a problem. Uh, how do you avoid these in the future? Because remember, these leaves are going to fall. You know, autumn is coming. So when those leaves fall, good garden hygiene. 
clean up those leaves. They are going to have evidence and um, leftover uh, infestation on them. So good garden hygiene. I wouldn't keep the leaves on the property if you don't need to. Remember as well that if we look after and really you know care for our plants, our trees particularly, water when it's dry, you know, we get into drought, water those trees, deep, slow uh, watering of of trees to get down below the lawns and down to the tree roots, uh, out at the drip line and beyond the drip line. And remember as well, fertilizer in the spring. So do what you can to support the trees to be happy and healthy, and you're less likely to have issues with any kind of pests or diseases. So, so don't worry, not not a problem, just funny looking. Yeah, um, I made a little note to myself last night with uh, getting rid of things on your property with uh, the unwanted seeds that a lot of uh, folks in Canada have been receiving. The unordered seeds, like seeds that just show up. These are unrequested seeds. Exactly. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency, CFIA, they've received reports from more than 750 individuals across Canadian provinces who have received these unrequested packages, unknown seeds. Now, they're postmarked as being from several different countries, many declared as toys or jewelry, and as a result, it's difficult to identify the packages uh, as containing seeds when they arrive in the country. So what do you know about this, uh, Charlie? Well, this was something I read about in the newspaper, and I read about it um, first in the United States. And people were actually planting these seeds, which, of course, is a super bad idea because, you, number yep. one, you, you haven't asked for them. You have no idea what they are. So uh, from, I guess, a curiosity perspective, people were planting them. And you and I are here to say to anybody who's listening, if you receive seeds in the mail that you did not order, do not plant plant them and do not throw them in the garbage and do not throw them in the composter because again they can grow in any of those situations and since we don't know what they are uh, there's a you know there's a huge risk attached to growing unknown plants it could be you could be you know sharing diseases you could be uh, you know exotic invasive plants have been introduced uh, you know time and time again by people moving plants around the world so do not like I said do not whatever you do plant any seeds that you haven't ordered um, now you did a little research here so tell us what should a person do if they get some seeds delivered unexpectedly in their mailbox. Right. Well, some really good uh, tips from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. What you're asked to do is put the seeds, the packaging and mailing label in a sealed bag inside a second sealed bag and report them to a regional CFIA office. Refrain from planting, as Charlie was mentioning. Uh, if you no longer have the seeds but still have the packaging, set it aside and, again, report it, please, to CFIA. That, again, is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And if you've already thrown the seeds into the garbage but still have packaging or other information that'll help determine where the seeds came from, please as well contact that agency. And uh, gosh, don't plant them. <laughs> Whatever you do, bur even burn them, I guess, might be a suggestion too, Charlie. Eh? Well, I, th I think that's what the CFIA will do. They'll just burn them. They'll uh, st stick them in an, uh, an incinerator because that, yeah, that's the best way. It's just destroy them in such a way that they will not grow. Well, I'm glad we covered that because uh, that's a, it'd be a heck of a thing to be uh, planting uh, really exotic plants you know nothing about could be invasive as mm -hmm. you say so 
avoid that at all costs. Okay, doke. Yeah, so wacky. Like, who, I, and I guess it's all they, what they think. I, what they, they don't call it fishing. There's a name for um, what this is. The idea is um, some supplier sending you things you haven't asked for, getting you interested, so then you want to learn more. And the idea is that this is going to somehow cause you to uh, order stuff from this supplier. But but it's just weird. I, I don't. Yeah, care. no, nor do I. Well, let's go back now to our uh, our emails from. The folks out there, uh, Diane, and now I hope I'm pronouncing this uh, correctly, Malachanthan Township. Is that even close? Uh, anyway, <laughs> Diane says, hi, Charlie and Frank. We're trying to grow enough potatoes for about four families. What is the answer for the Colorado potato beetle? Mm-hmm. We've already had this question a couple of times. This is obviously a year. Well, I guess it's a year that people are growing food more so than they have in the past. And it also seems to be a, a, like environmentally a year that the Colorado potato beetle is thriving. So that's a, a beetle that's about a half an inch or a quarter to a half an inch long stripes, brown and yellow or white stripes on its back. Um, and they're hungry, voracious things. They will eat all the foliage, of course, on your potato plants, which ultimately kills the plants. So then you don't end up with a great harvest of potatoes from below the ground because there's no growth happening above ground if the foliage is removed by these beetles. And I'm really sorry to say, Diane, you do say it's for about four families. So I say get all the families on a schedule, get everybody taking turns, uh, and get out there and pick them. That's all you can really do is pick those beetles off, have a pail in your hand with soapy water in it, and just pick and drop, uh, squish, uh, sweep, whatever the case may be, but get those beetles into a pail with some soapy water where they will drown and not come back and do any damage. When you're out there picking beetles, Flip over the leaves, look on the underside of the potato leaves, and you may see yellowish-orange eggs. Uh, now, if you do, then again, scrape those off, because those little eggs, of course, are going to hatch and become more beetles. And this is just going to be an ongoing thing. So I, I write a little note to myself, check regularly. So that's check for sure daily, preferably two to three times a day out there. And so a bit of foliage gets eaten. It's not the end of the world. The idea is just that you want to minimize the damage to the foliage in order to have the biggest plants possible, in order to have the biggest harvest possible of some yummy potatoes. And next year, to avoid this problem, get out what we call floating row covers. Just It's like a big piece of cheesecloth. And those floating row covers go over the top of your crop to keep insects from coming in and laying eggs on your crop. And this spring, of course, is when you're going to have to do that uh, shortly after you plant the potatoes. So it's just something to think about for the future. Okay. Uh, we have a report. I say a report. Uh, Kelly Harrington in Cambridge writes to tell you uh, of her adventures in the garden there. And there is a question at the very end of this, but let me read her report first of all. She says, I called late last summer about overwintering a couple of concrete trough planters containing hens and chicks and succulent. You advised me to pot up the succulents and winterize the trough with straw bales or something similar. 
And then she says, sorry, didn't heed your instructions on winterizing the trough. Simply covered them with an upside down metal tray and piled snow around them. The hens and chicks survived, but it was a mild winter. I set about to pot the succulents and thought, hmm, no problem. Succulents don't have much of a root system. The baby uh, chalk stick, or pardon me, the blue chalk stick and copper tone medium that sedum, gee, yeah, came out without a problem, nice and tidy. Then she goes on to say, the Moonglow Man Cave was another story. I kept loosening the soil and pulling it, but it hardly budged. I was trying not to damage the other plants around it. Finally, and rather brutally, I grabbed it with two hands and tugged and tugged till it came out. Well, the plants around it collapsed into the planter as I removed 30 inches of roots. As it lay on the lawn, my thoughts were that this will never fit in the five-inch deep pot that I had and should probably just go in the yard waste. I loved this plant and was really disappointed, but I, I couldn't throw it out, so I chopped off the roots to 12 inches and jammed it into the pot. <laughs> it was overwintered in a west-facing window. The man gave not only survived, but thrived throughout the summer, and there are three baby plants at the base under the leaves. Now, after all that, here comes the question part. When <laughs> and how do I remove the babies from the mother plant. I'd like to bring them in for the winter. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. I love the updates because I do remember Kelly calling last year, late in the summer, uh, with this yep. question of what to do. And she's right. It was a mild winter, and I'm glad that everything survived. I mean, hens and chicks are very tough, but I'm glad the trough survived as well. It didn't break or anything like that in the, in the cold because sometimes that happens with the freezing and thawing of moisture in the soil. Uh, inside the trough, you can have problems. But, um, yeah, so a moon glow man gave, all right, this uh, is something that I have never seen seen before. Uh, I looked it up. It looks like, the reason it's called Moonlight, Moon Glow Man Cave is because it looks like a moonlit night. It's super beautiful. The, it's, um, it's a spiky plant. The leaves are about an inch wide, silvery blue-green color to the leaves that actually glow with huge dark purple spots on them. So the more sun you have, the more dark purple spots you have. So it's a, it's a fairly new plant, actually. It's called an intergeneric cross. Actually, I think it's properly an intergenetic cross of Manfreda and agave. So agave is a plant that's very, very prickly, and, and Manfreda is not. But by putting them together, uh, they've come up with something that is called a mangave. Hmm. Interesting. So what, what do you do? Well, with those little pups or offsets. Those little offsets are the little babies growing down at the bottom. <clears throat> so you can just leave them alone. Leave them. They will get roots eventually. Uh, and, and then at that point, you, they're, they're easily separated just with a little, like a scalpel or a knife, a little blade. You can separate the babies from the mothers and the babies will have roots attached. And of course, you have to do a little bit of digging out. Um, or sometimes they'll just pull off. The smaller they are, the smaller the roots will be. So they won't have, you know, the deep roots of that, the mother plant. And again, you're going to pot up the little babies into small pots with very well drained, uh, sandy, gravelly type soil. Um, at this point, I'd leave them alone until spring because as we get into the shorter days and, you know, fall is coming, autumn is coming, plants know that and plants very naturally and normally slow down. They physiologically, they're slowing down, preparing to hunker down for the winter and doing any kind of transplanting or fertilizing or anything to 
to sort of support more growth is going against what the plant is naturally wanting to do. But in the spring, of course, it's the other way around. They're all about growing. So if you can, leave those babies until the spring and then pot them up separately. Uh, but of course, you're going to bring in these these plants, these succulents to survive the winter. And remember as well, dry. These plants want to be kept very dry throughout the winter, only water as necessary. But sounds like you did a fine job last winter. So I imagine it'll be fine. So thank you for your question and thanks for the update. Yeah. Alrighty. And thank you to the folks who have taken time and trouble to send you emails. But just a reminder here that we do need more emails for Charlie for next week's show. So please, if you would, uh, jot down a little email, send it along to Charlie Dobbin. Here's the address, c.dobbin, that's D-O-B-B-I-N, at mzmedia.com. And Charlie, we got to take a little bit of a break here to give the time for our sponsors to get their word in, and we'll return in moments here on Zuma Radio. Don't change stations just because the weather changes. Garden tips and advice all year round. This is The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin, exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, okay, Charlie, I have a note here from Maureen Boyce, who's a bit of a wordsmith, which I like. Yes, she she sends us notes often. (laughs) Yeah, beguiling begonias. Hello, Charlie. I grow four varieties of begonias in containers around the patio in my backyard, and uh, which gets morning sunlight and shade from 2 p.m. faces east. They love it there. I only have two baby wing begonias, and they are both having problems. Now, the leaves in these get tiny holes, then they start to brown at the edges. In the hot summer, I've been watering them every day, making sure they do not dry out. Uh, I didn't see the pics in this. Oh, I did. I'm sorry, I, I did. Went back, and it's a beautiful pink flower. Anyway, the white baby wing begonia has stopped blooming. What is wrong? Please help. All right. So, um, hmm. begonias are plants that actually prefer to be on the dry side. So I have a feeling, Maureen, that in your effort to make sure that they're well watered, that you're overwatering. So, um, I'm not, whenever I grow begonias in containers, I usually, instead of putting them in a plastic pot, I put them into a clay pot, like a terracotta clay pot. And the idea is that you're not only having water uh, and moisture evaporate from the surface of the soil, but moisture is also evaporating from the side of the pot. And that's a good thing with begonias. You want that ability for the plants, for the roots to dry between waterings. Plastic pots, of course, hold the moisture longer because you don't have that evaporation happening all around the sides. So they tend to get kind of soggy in the bottom when it comes to begonias. And looking at these pictures, I think that you're overwatering. Maybe, depending on the size of the pots, uh, a moisture meter would be a good thing. That's the little gizmo. It's like a probe uh, with a little meter on top. And you stick the probe into the soil down to the bottom of the pot and find out what's going on down there. Hard to tell from the surface. It can be bone dry on the surface and still very moist below. So bottom line, Maureen, remember that begonias do not want to be kept wet all the time. They do want to dry between watering. So get a moisture meter if that's going to help. And, uh, and in the meantime, thanks for the question. Always nice to hear from you. Okay, uh, here's a really interesting note from Mike Hury. says, uh, just thought you might be interested in this 
mimosa in my front yard in downtown Burlington. It blooms every year from early July to September. Saw the pics and one particularly is beautiful. Maybe you'd like to describe it to Charlie. Yeah, well, it's a pretty interesting tree. And, and I've, I had heard from Mike in the past and I said, oh, no, it's impossible, impossible. You don't. <laughs> so anyway, it's not impossible. As it turns out, um, Mike actually has a mimosa tree, commonly called a mimosa. So you know that drink we love to, that orange juice and champagne drink <laughs> that we love to toast each other with. So that's I could do the, with one right now. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. So that's a common name is mimosa. The proper name is albizia. So A L B as in Bob I Z I A, and then it's Julie Brisson. So albizia. Julie Brisson. The leaves look like fern, so very ferny leaf. The flowers are like pink puffballs, so very pretty. It is native to the Middle East and Asia. It was first brought to the United States in 1785 by a French botanist who planted some seeds in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, turns out this is a very happy plant in South Carolina. Grows fast. It is not a long-lived plant. Uh, it is subject to many pests. And it is uh, so adaptable that it's become quite a, a problem plant. It grows like a weed in uh, the, the southern states. And after those beautiful flowers are finished, six-inch long bean pods hang off the tree, which, of course, once they're mature, those seeds kind of blow out of those pods and blast all over the place and grow absolutely everywhere. So little mimosa trees growing up in every little crack in the sidewalk in South Carolina. So I just find it amazing that this plant has been living so happily in Burlington, Ontario for a number of years, obviously. So maybe that's just a good example of our changing climate and, and global warming. And it must be a very sheltered front yard that Mike has. But uh, good for you. You have a tree growing that I would never have expected would survive in Ontario uh, as long as yours obviously is. Um, it is adaptable. Isn't that something? Wow. Hey, you know, Charlie, when you suggested monarch butterflies as a subject we might touch on for this morning's show, I was taken back in time to a trip I was on. We were on a ferry in the middle of a very large lake, Lake Champlain, as a matter of fact. That's a mm -hmm. large natural freshwater lake in North America, mainly within the borders of the U.S. of the states of Vermont and New York. And we were amazed. Here we were in the middle of this large lake and coming uh, over the lake and over the, the boat we were on, the ferry, thousands and thousands of monarch butterflies on their way to Mexico. Wow. It was, it was incredible. So cool. Oh, so it, it so interested me, the subject of monarchs this morning. I actually went to the Internet and found this is what I found really, really startling and interesting. Defense. Uh, monarch's colorful pattern makes them easy to identify. And that's the idea. The distinctive colors warn predators that they're foul-tasting and poisonous. The poison comes from their diet. Milkweed itself is toxic, but monarchs have evolved not only to tolerate it, but to use it to their advantage by storing the toxins in their bodies and making themselves poisonous to predators such as birds. Isn't that cool? That is cool. And, and it kind of makes sense when you think about it, because monarchs are so distinctive. You'd think that birds would easily pick them off. Uh, and yet birds have learned, <laughs> don't eat the monarchs, even though they're very obvious. You, you can't miss them. They're not very edible. They'll actually make you very sick. Yeah. Oh, brother. 
Okay, the next question from Mike Rankin in Burlington. Hello, Charlie and Frank. Now, we planted some seeds from who knows where last fall, and this showy flower grew. It looks like it self-seeds. Can you please tell me what it is? It's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> it's such an interesting question after we were just talking about seeds that arrive from who knows where. <laughs> yeah. Don't plant them. So hopefully Michael Rankin in Burlington, Ontario, did not receive these seeds in the mail. These are actually um, some seeds that he was given. He just doesn't remember who gave them to him. But what's interesting too is that based on the photograph, uh, that's a poppy plant. And that's not just a regular, there's many kinds of poppies. That particular one is an opium poppy that he's growing. Uh, so papaver somniferum is uh, something that will definitely self-seed if it's given the right conditions. So, and then of course the right conditions are lots of sun, well-drained soil, uh, you know, good, fairly fertile soil. So what uh, Michael needs to do if he doesn't want this plant self-seeding is to uh, deadhead it. Once the flowers are finished, remove the flowers and the seeds will not ever become mature enough. Because if you leave a poppy uh, and you don't deadhead it, the petals will fall off and the, the fruit that's left behind is a very distinctive, it looks like a, um, it's called a capsule, and it turns brown and gets dry and has little holes will open in the top of it and seeds will disperse out of the um, the fruit that is beneath those petals. So if you don't want it self-seeding, that's what you got to do. You got to deadhead it. Otherwise, yep, you too can have opium poppies growing all over your yard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank, thank you, Charlie. Uh, we have to take our next break here on the show, but we'll be back very shortly. The Garden Show continues here on Zoomer Radio. Fur and feathers and bugs of all size. There's more going on in the garden than you realize. Should small creatures become a big problem, then you've got The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Exclusively on Zoomer Radio. Well, Charlie, I've got an interesting note here from Tara Wirasuria in Etobicoke. She says, hi, Charlie. Love listening to your show. Many blessings to your team. That includes our buddy Joel, of course. Says, um, I have a couple of rows of black raspberries. Some plants are bushy. They put out new canes vigorously, whereas others put out two or three and produce lots of fruit on these canes the next year. Now, the ones that put out a dozen or so canes are thin and produce very little. Is it possible to split these bushes in the fall, or should one wait until they're fully dormant and split them in the early spring instead of pruning out multiple thin canes? There you are from Tara. Yeah, so thanks for that, Tara. So just keep in mind that a, raspberry, a black raspberry, also known as a blackberry, is a shrub or a bush. It's not like a hosta or a daylily where we can go in there with a sharp shovel and split the plant into multi-other plants. With shrubs or bushes of any kind, splitting isn't really an option. The way we propagate is with cuttings. So taking little cuttings and then getting roots to grow and starting new plants that way. So don't be too concerned with splitting these plants. What you do need to do is a bunch of pruning. So here's how it works. Blackberries, there's kind of three different ways that blackberries grow. One is in an upright or, or erect, so canes growing up strong with thorns, or erect, growing strong, thornless, so no thorns. Or the third uh, mode of growth 
is trailing canes. So softer canes that uh, grow more horizontally along the ground and typically are thornless as well. And, and what people will usually do is support those trailing canes with a trellis. So they'll be growing up or a fence or whatever. So they'll be, um, they won't hold on. They have no tendrils or anything like that, but they can be certainly tied loosely to um, something to hold them off the ground. Otherwise, of course, your blackberries are going to get all dirty and not very edible if they're down at ground level. So the trick with blackberries is that any one cane is only going to grow for three years. So the first year it grows, it's got green leaves on it. The second year, that same cane will have green leaves and flowers and then ultimately fruit. And after the fruit is born on that cane, that cane dies. So your job as a, as a steward of a blackberry bush is to have your pruners ready. And once a, a cane has borne fruit, you cut that cane right back from where it comes from, from ground level. So removing old canes post fruit is, is the biggest deal. If you find the plants just getting uh, too big or the, like you mentioned, the, the, the canes are kind of thin and straggly, don't um, hesitate to cut back to halfway point in that first year when it's just a green cane. By cutting it back, it will be uh, a bushier cane. It'll have more growth on it and it won't be so thin and straggly. And of course, remember, obviously, fertilizing at the right, you know, appropriately in the spring and, and pruning it, like I say, uh, green. The green canes can be pruned to the halfway point at any point during the growing season. Once they've got the flowers on them, let them go because you're going to enjoy the fruit and then cut those canes right off post fruit. Some great information on the web. I, I did look at the farmer's almanac. So you can always uh, Google that one. Blackberries, farmer's almanac, good information and good graphics as well. Okay. Boy, we've had a number of interesting questions this morning. Uh, I know. I think we might come up to our final question here. This from Susan Mathers of uh, Union uh, here in Ontario. Hi, Charlie. I saw this beautiful plant growing in a shallow garden moat this week. Can you help identify it? She said, I enjoy your show every Saturday. Looking forward to your answer. And I looked at the picture myself. Beautiful, large petals on these flowers. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So here's my question to you. Do you know where Union is? Union, Uh, Ontario? Yeah, just south of us, I do believe. South and a bit to the west, I think. Oh, you're thinking, no, you're thinking Unionville. Oh, yeah, you're right. I am. I am thinking no, of Unionville. No. Yeah, that's what I thought. But no, Union is a, is a town way down south in Ontario, right down on Lake Erie, south of Chatham. It's even south of Detroit. Yeah, okay. probably yeah, Highway it, 3, yeah. Yeah, you would know that sort of neck of the woods, I think. Anyway, so that's where Susan's writing from. So, because I looked at that and I thought, ooh, it looks so familiar. Well, I, I have to admit, I went to my friend Sean James, because he's my middle-of-the-night ID guy. <laughs> and Sean, what is this? And he said, it's a lotus. That is a lotus plant, Nalumbo nucifera. So lotus is a, um, it's considered a hardy aquatic plant in temperate climates only. So it would not survive where you and I live at all over the winter. Uh, it would do fine. We could put it out for the summer, but it's something you'd have to bring in for the winter. Now, maybe Susan, when she saw this, whoever owns it is able to leave it out year round, or maybe they do bring it in for the winter. I don't know, but it's very, very pretty and they're easy to grow. They don't, they just need a very shallow, um, bowl of water. They don't need moving water or anything like that. And, um, 
gorgeous. Some of them are fragrant, come in all different colors and super unusual. So beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Susan. I really, it was fun to see that. And, and yeah, let us know. Is that the kind of, can you grow lotuses where you live year round? Amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> oh, good stuff. We're just about ready to, uh, Check out at the checkout counter here, Charlie. Oh, My gosh, I are. can't believe it. Wow. I know. Where, where did that time go today, huh? I don't know. It does go fast. But like you said, we had some really interesting questions. So keep those questions coming. I need more for next week. Oh, let me get the uh, address on the air then, for heaven's sakes, okay? Okay. So please, yeah, jot down a little question. Send it via email to Charlie Dobbin at C.Dobbin, D-O-B-B-I-N at mzmedia.com. And we'll look forward to being with you and sharing next Saturday morning here on Zoomer Radio. Thanks, Charlie. Exactly. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for all your, your good research and your good stories. Love to hear it. And thanks, Joel. Couldn't do any of this without Joel's help. And thanks to the great listeners with their wonderful questions. Keep those coming. Looking forward to next week. And we'll see you all again next week. This has been an exclusive podcast of The Garden Show with Charlie Dobbin. Heard every Saturday morning at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.